Hello, this is Emma Gannon and welcome back to The Success Myth Diaries. This is a brand new mini-series to accompany my new book, The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All, which is out on May the 18th, 2023. My book unpicks the eight success myths from happiness to money to productivity to celebrity to the idea of one day arriving. And it looks at all the different ways that traditional success is marketed to us endlessly and how it can take us off track to really what makes us feel personally fulfilled. To celebrate, I'm interviewing a selection of people I admire on this topic about success. And I've asked them to come with their three success myths that we can unpick together. Today's guest is Jeff Hamwe. He's a seasoned teacher, master facilitator, and chief innovation and education officer for the Modern Elder Academy. The Modern Elder Academy is a program for people going through midlife transitions. I love following their Instagram page and they do amazing online events. They're on a mission to reframe midlife from a crisis to a calling. And their purpose is to help people find a renewed sense of purpose and really love what they do as they go into the next chapter of their lives. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can find out more. I so enjoyed hearing Jeff's myths of success and it was super interesting all about transitions and making the most out of life. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. So I'm really excited to have Jeff here with me and we're going to dig into some of the themes around success which just feels quite important at the moment I think and you have so much wisdom and experience on this topic so thank you for being here. Before we dive into the three success myths that you shared with me could you just explain a little bit for the listeners about the Modern Elder Academy because I think it's so wonderful and I'd love to hear in your own words you know why it exists. Fantastic it's really nice to be here Um, we're speaking my morning your afternoon so good morning good afternoon. Why did we set up the Modern Elder Academy? Um, You know, it's actually a really interesting process to sort of think about success in relationship to why we set up the Modern Elder Academy. In 1905, you're expected to live to about 55. From 1905 to now, you can expect to live to about 76. This is data from the US, so I get it that it might not be the same world over. But actually in the US, if... um, if you live to 55, you're likely to live longer than almost anywhere else in the world. So what's happened is this massive demographic shift. Um, People are living longer than ever before. um, And it's not just aging longer, they've they've got healthy lifespans for longer than ever before. And I often think about it as if, if 20 to 50 is one adulthood and 50 to 80 is another adulthood, we've added another adulthood in the last 100 years. And we haven't really discussed what on earth to do with it, how to do it in a way that isn't necessarily the way that we've seen our parents or our grandparents grow older, right? Um, so if we've got a longer health span and a longer lifespan, how do we live that life longer? So the Academy was really kind of created to address that idea. It's like, wow, we're living longer. How might we reimagine the second stage of our lives? There's a tale of 247s that I just want to get out there as well before we dive into success. And I think this is where it kind of starts to push into success as a concept. The first 47 is um, at 47.7 years old. How old are you, Emma? 33. 33. So you have a good long time to go before the first 47. At 47.7, 
we hit the bottom of what's called the U-curve of happiness. Um, this is social science research from across the world. It's not just specific to the Western world. It, it applies almost everywhere globally, except for Russia, peculiarly. But anyway, um, and what it predicts is that at about 47.7, we hit a, a trough, a kind of a happiness trough, but we also kind of climb out of it. Um, and so while you, while you can sort of see that coming, you can also see that there is an exit from that, from that trough. So that's the first 47. We know how happiness works in human beings and well-being works in human beings. The second 47, which is an absolute shocker to me, is um, in America, and this is specific again to the US, people in retirement watch about 47 hours of television a week. I know. <laughs> so we've been given this, this philosopher's stone, and we've been given this incredible opportunity to live longer um, and have a second adulthood. And the majority of people are using it in retirement in the US to watch TV. I think really the Academy is, was created as a place to have people come to consider what they want to do in the second half of their lives. How do they want to spend their second adulthood? What do they want to learn? What are the questions they want to do, kind of get engaged with as they get older? Um, and really to sort of reframe aging from aging in midlife from this kind of crisis that I think is the sort of the historical story to a calling. What could midlife be? I love that. I love that. And I think it, in a way it's weird because it's like we've been lied to because this whole turning 30 thing, where did that come from with that apparently needing to be this sort of like scaremonger or scarcity mindset of time running out? Because, I mean, I look at what you guys are doing and, you know, even my dad, who's just turned 70, says he's the happiest he's ever been and living the most fulfilling life that he's ever had. And it's just so uplifting. It's it, that's what we should be talking about, not that time's running out. I guess if you if you're going to die when you're in your fifties, turning thirty is pretty significant, right? So it's outdated, yeah. yeah. So this whole idea has just gone out of date. Yeah, precisely. I think I read in an interview that you had changed up your life around 47. Is that right? Yeah. And what's really weird about it was I had no idea about this U-curve of happiness. I was 47 years old. I was living in uh, Northern California, um, just San Francisco Bay Area. And my wife and I had two young children, have two young children. We continue to. We realized that all we were doing was working. It's, a, it's one of those places where success is measured by quantity of money and, and achievements and IPOs. And it's a very fast paced place. Um, and I think the two of us just realized, wow, this is not the life that we want. We thought about it long and hard, packed up our truck and drove south a thousand miles. You can literally drive from San Francisco to Baja, California, where I'm based um, on the same road. It's literally the same road the whole way down a thousand mile road. And you you kind of peel off decades. It's it's like living in the 1970s here. It's it's a beautiful community, um, kind of a sleepy town. It's it's changed a bit. We've got more bars and restaurants and things going on. But um, yeah, we we left that life behind. I I went from being kind of an innovation consultant and looking at sustainability and green business and all of that kind of stuff, and went into being. Um, a partner with a guy called Chip Conley and a lady called Christine Sperber. 
um, the two of whom had been dreaming up this idea of the Modern Elder Academy. So I, I joined on the very first week that they did it. And what I love about my own story, um, if that doesn't sound weird, is I, I could never have predicted this. I could never have predicted the place, the role, the type of work that I'd be doing. Um, but I was able to take a bunch of stuff that I'd learned in my past life, you know, the things that I was able to do in a past life and bring them into this, into this new life. So it's been, it's been a fascinating journey. I love that you use the word past life because it does feel like life is in chapters and you know there's so mm -hmm. many different versions I, I love that um but yeah let's kick off with the first success myth because I found this really interesting you said the myth that the idea that there's an idea that we define success for ourselves and in in, in my book that I'm trying to kind of get at is not reinventing the wheel but the fact that there are so many different other versions of success and I chased such a traditional version quite quickly. And I feel lucky that I've come off that treadmill because I was so unhappy at a point where so many people were so impressed with what I was doing, but I was feeling very empty. And you're right. We don't define it for ourselves early on. We get really caught up in the scripts and what our parents want for us, what our friends want for us. It's kind of quite an addictive drug, I think. And to pull back on that, you're kind of pushing back on culture, which is obviously so enticing. So yeah, could you talk a bit about that? Love to. I'd also love to interview you one day on this because I bet you have got tons of fascinating insights on this on this work. So the, the idea of a script came to us from um, money. Um, so there, there were, there's this, uh, there were a couple of financial psychologists. There is such a thing as a financial psychologist called the Klontz Brothers, which sounds like a clown show, but is actually... They're serious researchers, and they they were looking at money scripts. This idea that we're handed down these scripts intergenerationally, and often they go unstudied. And really, it was just a sort of a simple step for us to think. Well, wow, I wonder if we we are handed down scripts about success in exactly the same way. And and as with so many of these scripts that we receive, they are received. We don't really study them. We don't really question them. And I think as we, you know, as we're young, we're just sort of bundled into these aspirations and hopes and dreams that other people have. And we chase them to your point, right? Gosh, I had it all. I was doing everything that was, was, I was supposed to be done. And yet it felt empty. Um, it didn't, it didn't feed me. And I, and I wonder at some level, Emma is, we just have to get to know ourselves. It's easier to take other people's scripts, societal scripts, familial scripts. It's like um, I have, as I said, two young children, and I can already see the scripts being kind of laid on them. Or you're the, you know, you're the sensitive one, and you're the strong one, or you're this, or you're that. So we have these things, and I think it just takes us a decade or two to sort through what are, what of these scripts, what of these things are mine. What do I actually want out of all of this? Very occasionally, you'll meet someone who had this kind of lightning strike as a young person. They're like, I want to be a poet, or I want to be a, you know, whatever it is, a musician or a doctor or something. And, and it seems to be uniquely personal to them and inspiration. But, but more often than not, I think we just get this jumble of inputs that tells us what it is that we'd like to be. Yeah, it's so true. And what I found kind of confusing about that is it can be really well-meaning, can't it? Like my parents want the best for me, so they want me to succeed in whatever 
way that is that can be quite pressurized or colleagues of mine would get so excited for me and put me forward for all these things but that they mean well but it's you have to kind of work out why it's not quite fitting the mold because we're all so different especially if you're like really introverted and I'm quite happy with not a lot actually and I had to really work that out and be like why don't I want all of that I just want to kind of be happy in whatever way that is for me. So one of the things that we do with people, which is utterly fascinating, it's it's fascinating to watch people kind of go through this exercise, is we ask them to to start to under to write down and to catalogue their su- success scripts. And you do it across purpose, community, and well-being, right? What 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 are the scripts that you were given as a kid? What did your parents say to you? What did your friends say to you? What did your community, your culture, there are cultural scripts that we receive, right? It is astonishing as people see what's underground. What is it that is underground in my soil that is kind of feeding me? And we get people to draw them. We draw these success trees. Uh, Well, it's not really success trees. We call them purpose trees. And underground are the success scripts that feed in to the trunk of the tree. And the tree might be well, it's the tree we tend to divide between purpose, wellness, and community. And then we sort of ask people to kind of grow out. And what are the fruits of your success? What are the fruits of your purposes? Um, and see it almost like a regenerative system. What's kind of, what is it that you've been told is important? What is it that you're growing? And what is it that you're actually fruiting? And it's fascinating to see how so very often, especially people who are kind of mid-career, have focused success and their success scripts, have focused their purpose on one thing. Um, So very often it's career, right? Which is at the end of the career, you know, when people are in their 60s, why there's this sort of devastation because there's just no portfolio of purposes. It's just this one thing where I got my community, my wellness, um, and my purpose. And so what we're trying to do is to get people to think about, okay, gosh, how do I how do I get a more balanced portfolio um, of purposes so that I'm not so fragile? I take a lot of this thinking, Emma, from regenerative farming and, and thinking about how do you create a more diverse soil system, you know, a set of roots that that so if something fails, let's say you lose your job, or let's say, you know, you have shifts in your community or whatever, you've got this ecosystem to help propel you forwards that makes so much sense because the the number one thing i see of why people don't go and forge a different path is is because it takes so much courage to change your identity essentially because if your identity is that job you're on shaky ground so i really love that idea of the soil and the foundation and that that inner strength actually to kind of change things up as you go Um, which actually leads us to your next success myth which is about how there's a myth that success stays the same over over your lifetime and what's so funny I think is I've I've just written this book about how you know I'm really turning my back on so many traditional versions of success or at least I'm I'm trying to rebel against some of the stuff that I feel made me unhappy but I feel like in the next few decades who knows what my definition of success will be who knows where I might end up and I actually really love that that um you don't have to like chisel it into stone I love the way you frame that in as much as there's, there's this Muhammad Ali quote that I just adore, which is that if you're the same man at 20 as you were, as you are when you're 50, 
you've wasted for 30 years, right? And I'm, I'm sure it applies to women as well. Um, you know, this, this idea that we, we're not the same per- person through our lives and that we can. And again, I want to disentangle a little bit between success and purpose. Success is being successful at your purpose, right? But purpose, I think, is we we often struggle with people coming in saying, I don't know what my purpose is. I need to find out what my purpose is. And there's this sense, and I think you touched on it in your description of the noun purpose, which is like the thing for which I'm made for, the purpose for which I'm made for. And it's this idea of a singular life purpose, right? So we talked about the doctor or the the poet or whatever. Um, and for so many of us, we, we're constantly re- reframing our purpose, right? We might be caregivers. We might be looking after our parents or our children. We might... You know, we might be career focused in one part of our lives. And I love this idea that we can be open to new to new purposes. Um, so the the verb, so the noun and the verb purpose have slightly different roots. The noun purpose is is the the, the thing for which you are made or the thing for which something is made. That's the noun. And the verb goes more towards what is being proposed? It comes from the French purpose. So what's being proposed to you by life? And I think when you kind of grab onto purpose as not that singular thing, but as these sort of suggestions over a lifetime, that gives you that fluidity that you're after and that ability to grow and change and expand as, as you're aging. And we know that having a sort of a growth mindset towards aging actually adds about seven and a half years of life to your life. So this is work done by Becca Levy. Um, and it's, it is fascinating that li- literally how you feel about aging and your, your attitude and your mindset towards aging can change your entire relationship. so interesting and and I love that purpose how you describe that it's like I feel calm when you say purpose because it's like the purpose of a pencil is just to write something it's actually quite clear kind of what purpose is something's just fit for purpose whereas I think the thing that puts people off is the word passion like that having to have this undying passion for something yes and that we change as we age, right? There's that sort of Jungian paradigm of we go from ego to soul in midlife, right? And so it's like, okay, if, if we are going, if, if in that first stage of life, it's about accruing and accumulating and so on and so forth, maybe the second stage of life um, is about finding more of a soul's purpose or more of a kind of, some, you said something that's, cl- I won't let go of my values, right? That sense that you're, that is something more values aligned. Um, so yeah, success, I think can shift over a lifetime. Um, I think if it doesn't shift over a lifetime, we're probably not working hard enough in terms of understanding who we are, paying attention to what we care about as we grow and change and evolve. Mm. And do you think it's the same for ambition? Because I think we also can be exhausted at different seasons in life. I feel like there are times where I've got this like rocket energy where I want to 
do all of the things. And then there's seasons where I just want to lay low. And I wonder if, is there any sort of curves or, I don't know, like charts you've seen in that? Like, do we wax and wane as we get older? Yeah, inevitably. Um, we did a, I did a whole course on transitions. Um, and one of the, one of the sort of things that we started to see, there's a guy called Bruce Feiler who wrote A Life in the Transitions. Um, and what started to come out in his work is this sense that we are constantly facing change in our lives. Um, he talks about having about 36 transitions, sort of major transitional events in an adult life, and three what he calls life quakes in an adult life. And I think what characterizes these transitions is that there are moments underground. And again, I can't help myself. I keep on going back to these kind of soil analogs. There are moments when you're underground, when you're, when you're not sort of blooming and blossoming and fruiting and flowering, when, when you're just in the soil, working it out, um, transforming. And, and I think often because of that rush to be above ground and that sense of like, I've got to be producing, I've got to be doing something, we don't give ourselves the time to transition. It feels, it feels self-indulgent. I should be productive. I think we're productivity addicts in our culture. Um, and so, yeah, I think oftentimes what people will take away from their work with us is like, it's okay for me to take a year off. Um, there was this woman that came through our, one of the groups and she said something to me that I'll never forget. She was like, I, I thought that I was stuck. I spent five years thinking that I was stuck and I realized that I was just in transition. And I, and I often think, you know, you'd never look at a seed and say, oh, you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Or a caterpillar in a little little cocoon, yeah. Because yeah. with the Modern Elder Academy, Academy, would you call it, is it called a retreat? Do you use that word? Because I suppose that is retreating and making space yeah. to go underground a little bit, maybe. Absolutely. It is, it is retreating. You know what's amazing is more often than not, it is regenerating. I don't feel like we do anything spectacularly rocket science-y. You know, you're not going to come, if you were to come and spend a week with us, which I'd recommend, um, you're not going to be like, oh my God, this is mind-blowing. I've never thought of these things. What, what it'll be is this sort of reconnection to connecting with people, making community, making friends. Again, as people come to that kind of point of their lives in, in their 40s and 50s and 60s where they've been working, they've been looking after kids, they're looking after their parents, they kind of vanish. Having time with yourself, reconnecting to new people, new ideas, new places, having that kind of type two fun, which is kind of nerve wracking, but at the same time, stretching you, growing your boundaries. I think that's the way when you're in a, in a transition to decide what comes next. This leads us on to the third success myth. And I absolutely love this one. And I felt like kind of your passion coming through on this one that it's because it is sold to us that it's sort of about the, the it's about, you know, the end goal and this achievement and that we should sacrifice and suffer. So you put um, the myth that there's only that the only way to success is through suffering or sacrifice, that we have this rigidity around the no pain, no gain, and that, you know, we'll get to that. It doesn't matter what it takes, basically, like to build the company or get the house or 
become your best self. Um, so yeah, I'd love if you could explain how that you're turning that on its head that, that that's not really what it's all about. I'm, I'm doing some research at the moment for a book around men's feelings um, and how men feel about things and ultimately how men and women and we all feel about things together. And it's been fascinating to kind of unpop some of these sort of narratives, these cultural success narratives around how it doesn't matter how things feel. Um, you have to win, right? And I feel like this is a pretty patriarchal idea in terms of the framework. Um, and, and again, not necessarily freighted with the politics of patriarchy, but more with the sense of like, in a society where we were so close to survival, right? It was, you know, you might be attacked, you might be killed, you have to defend, you have to hunt, you have to, a lot of these narratives around how things feel not being important make a lot more sense. Um, I think as we, we've we sort of evolved and shifted and changed, again, I think our narratives around how things feel haven't evolved and shifted and changed as well. Um, I think the idea that winning is all that matters ignores the fact that with just a few tiny tweaks, we can make things feel better. The journey can be better. Again, if I go back to my previous career around sustainability and innovation, there was often the sense that's like, no, we're we're running hard and we're having to we're having to produce and make money, and there are these sort of quarterly profit and loss things that we have to address. And a pause, a thought could just change the design of a product so that it could perhaps be more environmentally thoughtful, uh, less impactful, more socially thoughtful and more impactful, you know, giving back to communities and societies. And you look at companies that that take a breath and that take the chance to say, hey, could we do this in a way that is more generative? that generates benefits for, for people, for human beings, for the planet and for everything. And so I, and I think that the part of the challenge is not that those companies are particularly innovative or that those people are particularly innovative. It's that we're not good at saying, hey, this feels crappy. This feels like crap. I, you know, working in a toxic culture where everyone's horrid to each other just doesn't feel good, even if we're going to win. Yeah, it reminds me of that Seth Godin quote, which is like, I'm not here to win, I'm here to contribute. And contributing just feels so much better. It's like our human nature, I think, to just want to do your bit and together we can do more. And it leads to this idea, Emma, of successism. I think there is a stacked ranked order of what success can and should be, right? So if you made tons of money, um, it really doesn't matter if it felt bad. Um, we admire the people who who have done well financially, uh, in you know, sort of the captains of the tech industry and so on and so forth. We don't even need to mention them, right? At the same time, we know about the cultures that they've created and the human experiences that they've created. And because there's this stack and because feelings don't matter, it's like, okay, well, that doesn't matter. They They won. And so to me, that's like, oh, no, I'd love I'd love for how a business feels to be important. I'd love for what a business does in the world 
and how that feels to be important. So that's kind of what I'm exploring as well. I love that. I can't wait to read that. That sounds super fascinating. And like you say, we're all sort of in it together, but I do feel like the men in my life actually, I would say, struggle with this more in terms of peeling back that needing to win or it feels more sort of culturally embedded in their definition of success, which I think is, yeah, a struggle for them. So that sounds really, really powerful. Um, and if, we, if we've got time, you did actually mention a bonus myth, which was about success happening fast. Um, I think it would be lovely to leave on a note just about how success does take time and, you know, celebrating that, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, you know, so very often we all kind of bring different intelligences to the world and different skills to the world. And some of those reward us instantly. Um, you know, you have these kind of lightning bolt people who kind of come out of the gate and they've built companies or become, you know, entertainers, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and then you have these slow bloomers. You have people who perhaps needed more life experience or more insight to be able to bring the things that they that they have to the world. Um, I, I think the sort of the classic story of this is someone like J.K. Rowling, right, who kind of it didn't happen immediately for her but but in the second part of her life and i love this idea that in a second adulthood in a soul adulthood we can we can bloom we can we can still find really profound success on our own terms and going back to your idea of what is what are my values what do i value what do i care about rather than on someone else's terms thank you so much i really love following your work, the Modern Elder Academy, and just in general, this topic. And I think it's not just as well, like the myth of it being for a certain age. I think the more we can all get to terms with, because we're all going to get there at some point, how we can design our lives better and and also kind of not be afraid of it. Like I'm quite excited about hopefully who I'll turn into and you're like learning. It's like a little kind of um, treasure hunt. I'm like learning more about myself and so thank you so much for all your work. Where can people sort of find more if they are intrigued? Yeah, come to the modernelderacademy.com um, and check us out and come and come and see our weeks. We run online programs as well. So if you can't make your way to Baja, um, we're going to be opening up a campus in Santa Fe in New Mexico in Q1 of next year, and then another one. And the campuses are, are just gorgeous. It's, you know, the one down here in Baja is, is by the beach and it's just a fabulous place to spend time. And the one in, in New Mexico is on a horse ranch, a two and a half thousand acre regenerative horse ranch. So we're using horses to regenerate the land there. And we also offer up to about a million and a half dollars in scholarships to people. So, you know, we try and get as many people to have the experience as possible. So if this feels outside of your budget, talk to us. We can we can help. Amazing. Thank you. I feel like I'm going to end up in Santa Fe at some point in my life. I'm a huge fan of Julia Cameron. And I feel like because she yeah. lives there, you know, I hope to bump into her. Yeah. Come on over. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's so good to connect with you. I'm excited to share this episode. Thanks, Emma.